Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by my good friend of Fangraphs.com, a very good professional baseball website that you should go visit and become a subscriber if you're not already. John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I am doing quite all right on this pleasant Tuesday afternoon here in New York, waiting for some afternoon baseball, chatting about some afternoon baseball. Baseball. Exactly. Baseball all the time. Um, John, I will go ahead and tell you, I thought about sending this tweet out, but I'm like, I don't want to get the reaction that I think I'm going to get for this. But I don't know if you uh, saw it tonight, John, but Atlanta United plays at seven or like right before it. Um, Atlanta Braves played tonight against the, the Marlins at like 7:20, and the the Raptors and the Hawks play tonight as well. I am so pissed off that I have so much to watch, and I didn't realize that like the crossover with the three different sports is now just a part of my life for the next couple months. Football is just like it's just football and basketball at the tail end, but they play on different nights. John, how am I sleeping again? It, like, how am I going to do this? This is something I ran into and that Boston fans in particular ran into like every April for the last mm, decade or so because it was the start of Red Sox season and usually toward the tail end of Celtics and Bruins seasons and they would usually be heading to the playoffs. So everyone had to make that choice of what am I watching? I remember there was a Patriots Day oof, seven or eight years ago. I, f- I can't remember exactly when. Um, when you had the Red Sox playing and both the Bruins and Celtics had playoff games that same day. So... Granted, that's not a thing I think you ever really have to worry about with Atlanta's dueling playoff games. But at the same time, no, I I, I know what you're I know what you're what you're going about is that you know you, you can only pay attention to so many things at once. Yeah. Well, speaking of things I'm paying attention to, John, you got a new sound. You got a mic. Like we're not mic. doing this over the phone anymore. You are no, official. We are. I am a legitimate podcasting guy. Yeah. Which now Big means I need to start my own podcast that's going to be the exact same as yours, mm. and it's just going to be like. Just the, you know, we're, we're just going to go head to head. Why and that I'm also compete? going to call it the Chase Thomas show. <laughs> that would it's going to cool. be really confusing for everybody. Right. Uh, it would be. It would be. Um, don't forget, folks, you can check this out by going to ChaseThomasPodcast.com today. Or, you know, if you want to support the show really easily, just go to Patreon.com slash ChaseThomasWriter. Become a Patreon there. Or, you know, just leave us a five-star rating and review if you like listening to John. And I yak about Major League Baseball every single Tuesday. John, a lot of news to get through today. Uh, Baseball is here. We were not able to record last week for the start of the season because uh, grad school. It turns out they don't just hand out degrees if you're woke, John. You actually have to do research. You have to do work. And this is a – I'm in the gauntlet stage of – um, this semester with uh, it wrapping up in a couple weeks. So I have a lot going on and I was just like, I, I, I need to make sure I'm okay going into the last couple weeks. So I took the week off, but um, we're back. And you know who else is back, John? Tim Anderson is making his return for the White Sox. Yeah, and that's a really important thing for them because he really is a fat, especially in terms of just the, the leadoff factor he presents. I mean, he, I know he's never been and probably never going to be uh, a big on base guy and he's never really going to be a guy who just starts taking his walks his game is predicated on contact and speed but it is really important for the White Sox to have that at the top of their lineup and I think Chicago is definitely a team that just could use uh, I know this sounds kind of like sports talky but they could definitely use the consistency because th- I mean that's a team like the Mets where 
they've just gotten off to such a kind of stop and start, well, start just because of, I mean, in Chicago's case, because of injuries, in the Mets' case, just because of uh, bad weather and the Braves' COVID outbreak. Or sorry, uh, no, it was the Braves' or no, sorry, the Nationals' COVID outbreak. The Braves have somehow the Braves have not had a COVID outbreak. I'm I'm not gonna lie, I'm mildly, if not entirely, surprised by that. But that is a like I said, Tim Anderson's a really important player for the White Sox to have. He kind of makes, especially with, when they're already down Aloy Jimenez, when they're already down a bunch of outfielders or at least a bunch of outfield depth, when they don't really have a backup catcher. There's kind of a lot about that White Sox team where it feels like the pieces don't quite fit right together right now. And I think you're probably seeing that, too, in just kind of the inconsistent way they play. You just how, you know, some days they look like, I mean, it's true. Some days they look like world beaters because they have just incredible talent on both sides of the ball. But they also just seem like there's, you know, it, all the pieces don't really fit together right. And I think Tim Anderson is probably a very important part of that, as I said, like a, a table setter atop the lineup and as kind of a steady presence in the middle of the infield. Yeah, and I think they need all the help they can get because they are uh, your team of 2021, John. You were all in on the White Sox. I was... Eh, and uh, you need Tim Anderson there if you're going to come through on that White Sox prediction. Um, Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald had this to say. I was reading... Uh, the Marlins apparently played the Braves last night. I, I tuned out after, you know, a like, 10th strikeout. I was like, oh, yeah, the Braves won. So I'm assuming the Braves won, uh, by all accounts, uh, last night against the Miami Marlins. Um, but he had this little anecdote this morning in his piece that I thought was interesting that I didn't know if you were up with. But he had this quote. Besides pursuing Cubs catcher William Contreras in trade talks this past offseason, the Marlins also attempted to snag Yermin Mercedes, who, um, speaking of the White Sox, um kind of amazing coming out of nowhere i think he's batting 500 exactly right now uh leads the al and hits um had like five hits in his opening game for the white Sox, and the marlins uh tried to get him this this offseason before he became like a, a kind of a early season legend in the al central which kind of seems to be a theme especially with the tigers as well with these guys coming from obscurity and just killing it right away um, what do you what do you make of that little nugget uh, from Jackson of the Herald on uh, the Marlins catching situation? I find that a little weird because your mean Mercedes is not really a catcher. I mean, and this is this isn't just something where it's like the White Sox are seemingly hesitant. No, he very clearly isn't because they'd rather use Zach Collins as Yasmani Grandal's backup, and Zach Collins is basically a refrigerator that someone stapled a glove to. Like, if Zach Collins is ahead of you on the catcher depth chart, then you are not a catcher, and. You know, since the National League doesn't have the DH, which is what your mean Mercedes is just going to have to be, presumably, for the rest of his career, unless he somehow learns how to be a catcher, or at least a better catcher, then I don't really understand what the plan was in particular there. I, I don't think he's someone who you can realistically get away with playing on the regular. There's also the question of what was Miami planning on doing with Jorge Alfaro, who certainly isn't a guy where you, you know, you don't, you don't block him necessarily, but he is still there. So I find that a little curious. I mean, I think it's it's definitely a sign just that Mercedes is a guy who I don't want to say is nece- was necessarily underrated because I don't know if there was any real rating there, but a guy who has who definitely has the tools to succeed. And you're seeing that both the White Sox and other teams recognize that. But that fit just doesn't really make any sense for Miami unless they really saw something in his catching ability that to date no one has no one else in the league has seen. But I mean, who knows? It's every team has their own evaluations. I just. Like I said, I, I just don't see how that works particularly, unless they're just okay living with terrible defense behind the plate. Well, they're clearly not in on Alfaro, who is struggling again from the behind the plate. And also, he's just struggled as a game caller. And that was just something... Like, defense, not a great 
game caller and now his hitting's just not there so you're like what is he actually providing um and it's clear that they're looking to upgrade that spot but i mean even if they want to upgrade this winner like there's not a lot out there i mean you can go after darno you can go after um i mean maybe like I, i'm just gonna go ahead and assume uh posey's not there and then you have the red Sox. like you can speak to this better than i can like Vasquez is probably going to get his option picked up, right? Like he's not going anywhere. Almost certainly, yeah. Yeah. So then you're just like, okay, what do you, what can you really do there? So the Marlins are kind of in a rough spot when it comes to the catcher position. I think this season and maybe um, for the foreseeable future, if Alfaro does not figure it out, which seems to end, like they seem to not believe that he might uh, figure it out. Um, John, Major League Baseball replay. Um, this is coming from a non-biased perspective. It's uh, not fair. It weirdly hates Atlanta. Like that was something that I was not expecting that uh, the replay booth would have it out for the city of Atlanta. Um, it's news to me. Could could not believe it. But um, we had a an incident on Sunday night where um, Mr. Bum did not uh, touch home plate, and uh, they said Mr. Bum touched home plate, and uh, the Phillies won a won a game, and the Phillies currently sit atop the NL East standings at the moment john um what what's the point of replay if something like that doesn't get overturned yeah and this is kind of the thing i'll I'll admit i didn't see the play on sunday i I saw it afterward and Mm -hmm. yeah it was it was clearly botched but this is kind of the issue that replay has run into the whole point of it existing is to correct the obviously wrong and bad calls which it failed to do instead and on top of that it's been turned into something to litigate the tiniest, most ticky tack. Like I, I, I think it was. Uh, I think it was. Yeah, it was Braves Marlins last night, where I believe John Birdie got thrown out stealing, mm-hmm. and if he was out, it was by maybe the a fingertip. You know, like he he got nabbed just before he touched the base. He initially got called safe, he got overturned, he got thrown, and he got called out. And to me, it's like okay, fine, replay corrected what was you know a mistake, but. Like, is this really what we need replay for to determine if someone is safe by millimeters? Or is it for something like, you know, if it's, is that really what it's for if it can't even get the big stuff right? Not to mention how long replay takes at this point, which I, I particularly don't understand. There's supposed to be a time limit on how long replay takes. Yeah. We routinely blow past that. No one seems to care about that. About three minutes of entirely dead air where umpires are standing around waiting for another umpire in New York to go over video. I, I mean... I, th- I think there are two ways you can kind of go about it. One is you can you can tweak replay to the point where it's, okay, we're not going to use it to litigate whether a guy popped on or off a bag, or we're not going to use it for this kind of small stuff. It is only going to be, and I, I've argued about this before, and I, th- I think I've made the suggestion before, that it's only going to be for correcting calls that are visibly wrong to an to an outside party, a.k.a. if the replay center in New York sees a call get made that's wrong, they get on the phone to that particular group of umpires or whatever form of communication and say, hey, you guys missed this call. You called him out. You called him safe at home. We just looked at the video. He's out. You know, that's that. Otherwise, you're just you just end up in this middle ground where replay is pretty much just used as a managerial kind of litigation tool as opposed to what it's supposed to be there for. So if it's not going to be there, then you might as well get rid of it. If, if replay is not going to catch this stuff and it's all it's going to do is slow the game down for ticky-tack, you know, overslides, then get rid of it. And I know that's kind of antithetical to the idea of like, well, you want the call to be right. The call's not always going to be right anyway. We don't have replay for balls and strikes. We, you, you can't review those. I mean, in a similar vein, that Michael Conforto hit by pitch 
uh, against the Marlins where it was a walk-off that where he very clearly not only leaned into the pitch, but the pitch was also a strike, it couldn't be reviewed because you can't challenge or replay a call that involves balls and strikes. Once the umpire called it a strike, that was it. There was no more looking back at it. And that's the kind of thing where it's like very clearly the replay was implemented without a whole lot of deep thought as to how it would be used. And I think at a certain point for MLB to make it successful again, it almost has to go be entirely within the discretion of the umpires and not necessarily up to the managers. Or you just accept that calls are going to be wrong sometimes, you know? And that sucks. It's, it sucks to think that, like, you know, especially because the invariable result is that's going to happen in a playoff game and people are going to lose their minds. But, hell, that's how baseball's been played for 100-plus years. Sometimes calls got wrong. Balls and strike calls are still wrong. There's other stuff you can't review in a game that just goes un, unaddressed. It, it, that, that's almost what it feels to me. Is like you either do replay for everything and you have it controlled exclusively by Major League Baseball and the umpires and not at the discretion of teams, or you just let go of it. Because this middle ground where calls are still gotten wrong or where wrong calls are not overturned, but you're still doing stuff like, oh, did this guy's foot come off the bag for half a second? That, that, that's to the benefit of, just, of absolutely no one. No, and I also think it's just counterintuitive to what baseball's trying to push right now. Like the pitch clock and experimenting with uh, getting games done faster by having someone on second to start off. Like that's how the Marlins beat the Braves last night. Like there, you have it on one end where you're like, let's get this game, these games done faster. Let's get these pitchers in and out faster. Let's restrict how many times they can go to the bullpen. Like they're trying to speed everything up. And then they're like, oh, also let's throw this uh, very slow meddling, prodding, thing into the middle of these games that just don't even work to begin with like it's just it's counterintuitive and it's just uh serving two very uh, it's just i don't know it sucks and it's just going to be a frustrating part i think for the rest of the season um dexter fowler uh unfortunately will miss the rest of the season what do you make of the fowler injury for the cardinals so I didn't, or I didn't really think that Fowler was all that big a deal for the Angels, just in terms of whatever impact he Angels was going to have, because yeah. he he's pretty much a league average player at this point by I think pretty much every measure. The problem with the Angels, and this is always the problem with the Angels, is that losing Fowler means they're now starting Juan Lagares every day, mm. and well, Lagares at the very least is a good defensive outfielder, so you can live with that to a certain degree. But he's not someone who needs to be in the lineup every day, or should be in the lineup every day. And that's only going to get further compounded when you have Justin Upton in the lineup and in the outfield every day, and he is very clearly not the same hitter he once was. I think it's a something to keep an eye on, I think, for the rest of the season and going forward is, is Justin Upton, is this just finally it? He really does just look like he has slowed down tremendously. So, and especially because it's a torn ACL, that means Fowler's not coming back at all. The question for the Angels becomes, if assuming that they do not want to live with Juan Lagares in right field for the rest of the year, which I really doubt they do, the question now becomes, how do we fill this hole? Do we promote Joe Adele, or do we go out and find someone on the trade market who can maybe I mean maybe it's just, maybe it's something as simple as finding kind of two cheaper outfielders you can kind of put together in a platoon role or something. I think the third option would probably be Shohei Otani. I kind of doubt that that's a realistic thing that the Angels want to try. I assume they're just they don't want him further exposing himself to potential injury risk. I also don't know if he's good enough an outfielder to play on the regular. He hasn't done it since, I believe, one of his last years in Japan, which would have been a bit ago now. But if you're going to go with Adele, and I think probably the Angels will ultimately go with Adele. The only problem is he looked so bad last year. He really just you know looked overwhelmed by Major League Pitching, had a lot of trouble making contact. you know. And with there being no normal, really minor league season this year and a lot of alternate site stuff, when are the Angels going to know and feel confident in Joe Adele? And I think that's probably the biggest issue with, with Fowler is 
through his injury, it exposes not just the lack of death, but also forces them to kind of rush that decision on Adele, assuming that they, again, that they don't want to live with Ligaris and right field on the regular. Yeah, it's sink or swim time for Mr. Adele. And uh, it's unfortunate, but the Angels are also playing really good baseball. They're 7-3, seven, seven and three, and they uh, they kind of just can't wait on him um, if they're really going to make the most of uh, the season. But Anthony Rendon now going to the 10-day injured list as well. Like, this is – are you worried about Rendon right now? No, unless this turns out to be uh, more serious than – than initially indicated it seems like it's a pretty like a mild groin strain and it, it, i don't believe groin strains are those injuries that linger around this isn't like a wrist or a shoulder injury that you know you would be worried about or a back injury or foot injury that you'd be worried about you know him having to compensate or that would affect his swing or his stance or anything like that you know assuming the groin injury heals properly it should be fine and it shouldn't reoccur um but again it's just that thing where it's the angels are just and granted, this is every team. Like no team has a no team that has an Anthony Ren, has on Anthony Rendon has a good replacement for Anthony Rendon when he gets hurt. And granted, that's definitely the case for the Angels, who now have Jose Rojas playing third base. And that's again, it, to to paraphrase Joe Girardi, it's not what you want. But I think it's one of the things for the Angels more so than a lot of teams really need to keep everyone healthy. Because I know we've talked about this before, and I just mentioned it with Fowler. The depth really isn't there for them to lose guys and for them to lose uh, top tier guys for for an extended period of time. Like especially for a team where every win counts, every you know every win counts that much more. Better said, because of the position they're in, the AL West, where they already have you know the Astros right with them, and I guess the A's aren't so much a part of this conversation yet, but they're certainly not a bad team, although they don't look good right now. You know, they, they can't really afford a long absence from their top guys. They need those guys to get back soon, and they need that depth to be there to help keep them afloat. Joe Musgrove, the first no-hitter of the 2021 season. What did you make of it, John? I just love that after years of being told that Joe Musgrove is happening, that the, the Joe Musgrove hype <laughs> is coming, that it, it actually now is happening, and it, it only took about 15 years. But He just had to go home. It, he just needed to go home. And I was going to say, that's that's the, the fun part of this especially, is that uh, Musgrove got to do this as a hometown kid. Ideally, it would have happened in San Diego, but you, know, you don't always get what you want. Um, and so I think that that's obviously just the, the, the great part of the story, beyond this is being the first Padres no-hitter in, in franchise history. But I think you look... You look in particular at what Musgrove is doing, and a few things stand out. First is, obviously, he hasn't walked anyone, and certainly I don't expect that to continue. He's definitely going to walk somebody at some point. Um, he's throwing more, or he's uh, he's gotten better results with his pitches. He's got, he's, his command seems better. The big thing I'm seeing, though, is that already, and this is just, I, I feel bad ragging on the Pirates for this, but it's just so easy to know that when they trade a pitcher, you know he's going to do something different with this new team, and he's immediately going to get better. The Pirates idea how to develop or work with pitching and with Musgrove you see it in getting to San Diego immediately almost entirely ditching his four seamer and using basically going a slider as a slider cutter pitcher going forward using the slider against right handers and the cutter in particular against lefties and that's worked really really well for him that fast seam, that fastball of his wasn't really accomplishing much in years previous um, so I, I think it's just interesting to see there what the what he's done differently with his arsenal I think you can already tell like you know, usually when a guy is off to a good start or when a guy does something like this, you want to look at, okay, what's different? What's changed? What's he doing new? 
And I think with Musgrove, you can see it already. Well, he's throwing he's throwing one pitch more and one pitch less. And I think that's probably, you know, that's certainly part of it. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how long does or not how long does that continue? I assume he's going to keep doing it, but is that success sustainable? And what is that going to look like for him going forward? Is it, it is just a matter of like, you know, if he's capable of this and he he just proved he's capable of it, then especially too for San Diego, boy, like already you Darvish and Blake Snell and and eventually Denilson Lamette when he's healthy. And now to have Musgrove on top of that, who they got for nothing, too. Just, again, not to keep ragging on the Pirates, but, boy, they really got not a whole lot in that trade. Um, that's a really big thing for San Diego, have a rotation that when, especially when Lamette's healthy, goes four deep. And you don't have to worry so much about, oh, what's wrong with Chris Paddock? Or, you know, can is Mackenzie Gore going to be able to make an impact in time or any of that stuff? Especially with Adrian Morihone hurt now, too. Yeah. Um, last bit of news before we get into uh, the Round the Diamond aspect of our show today tim lacastro catches tim reigns what did you make of this really strange but interesting feat i mean it's cool it's, yeah. it's definitely something i it's one of those things where it's like every baseball season gives you like f- five or so like random not even five but like every baseball season just gives you a bunch of random stats where you're like huh, i never would have guessed that or i never would have assumed that was going to happen and definitely here it's tim lacastro matching tim reigns's record for consecutive stolen bases like you're like Real, I, I imagine most people, if and when they saw this news, were like, what is a Tim LaCastro? Exactly. And I can't say I blame them. He's not really a guy that you really should think of. But it makes sense. I mean, you look at his you look at his stats, and certainly in terms of offense, he's, there's nothing really there. I mean, it's mostly a lot of just kind of average fourth or fifth outfielder stuff. But then you look at the sprint speed. In the 100th percentile currently, which is really something... Uh, I don't believe we have full numbers for that yet because there's a minimum event requirement for for sprint speed to show up. But based on what we have solely through through what Statcast shows us, I mean he's he's one of the fastest men in baseball. So you combine that with the fact that he's working with Reigns and that Reigns is there to help him, and it doesn't surprise me that he managed to pull this off. It's just funny that he's the guy who pulled this off. I mean, if you if you could have taken a bet like ahead of the 2021 season, someone is going to break Tim Reigns' record for consecutive stolen bases. Who is it going to be? I mean, you would have guessed probably, geez, I don't know, uh, a, a fast guy you'd already heard of, which is uh, I'm kind of defeating my point by not being able to remember a single name off the top of my head. But yeah, LaCastro, definitely not the kind of guy you would expect, but he definitely has the tools to do it. The only trick is, and especially now with Kettle Marte out, is is there anything more to his toolkit than just a lot of speed? What's interesting to me is you look at his stats, he has he ranks in the 100th percentile in sprint speed and the 6th percentile in outs above average. So that suggests to me there's a lot of raw tools there that haven't really been developed into you know, actual production. So what Arizona gets out of that is going to be interesting to see. For sure. Um, there's a lot of around the diamond stuff that I wanted to pick your brain about today, John. Um First, we have to talk about the Red Sox, who have gotten off to a hot start there atop the AL East, which I assume will be the case all season long, John. Um, why are the Red Sox winning to start this season? So I think part of it, obviously, or at least going to the season, I always kind of figured this Red Sox team will, to a certain degree, sink or swim on how well it's top four. And if you want to include Christian Vasquez, and I think you should, top five hitters we're going to do and so far you're seeing that yes that is entirely the case this Red Sox team is good right now because JD Martinez is hitting out of his mind because Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers are hitting well because Vasquez has hit well and even though uh, Alex Verdugo hasn't hit well so far he's hit well enough that you know he's obviously still part of that 
this is a this Red Sox team I think is kind of similar to the Angels when we talked about them during the offseason about kind of a stars and scrubs approach where it's a lot of there's some big names there but there's also kind of a lot of there is a lot of Hunter Renfro in the monitors and the trick for Boston is going to be not even even beyond just can those top guys continue to contribute it's also going to be can those guys we brought in the the Marwins Gonzalez and the Kike's Hernandez and the Hunters Renfro and and the I guess Nick Pavetta, but that's a different kind of thing. Can they bring enough of a floor to overcome the fact that they are that they're not stars? Because if you if you look at the 2020 Red Sox, one of the big problems was there was just not no real floor or ceiling for a lot of those guys. So that when the big names struggled, when you had Martinez and Devers struggling all year, and when you had uh, no Eddie Rodriguez, no Chris Sale, that there were a lot of holes opened up and a lot of playing time given to guys who just weren't either ready for it or simply aren't major league caliber players. And I think, understandably, Boston went into this offseason, I imagine, with the idea of let's patch some of those holes with guys who may not be stars, but at least in Hernandez and Gonzalez and Renfro are acceptable, capable, average major league players who can excel in, in certain situations and in certain amounts of playing time. So I think that's going to be the trick for Boston going forward. It's, okay, we've got J.D. Martinez hitting again. Devers and Bogarts are doing their usual thing. Vasquez looks legitimate. Verdugo is uh, a guy to build on. You know, Now it's a matter of can the other guys brought in to help make sure that that floor stays higher actually produce? Because obviously you know, J.D. Martinez is not going to have an OPS plus over 300 for the rest of the season. It, it's going to be on guys like Kike and Marwin Gonzalez and, and Hunter Renfro to chip in as well. Otherwise, this hot start is going to be pretty much just that, a hot start. Well, we shall see. We shall see, John, because there were some uh, pre, uh, preseason buzz around uh, this Red Sox team. And you got to be enjoying the Red Sox starting off great and the Yankees kind of having a rough go of things to, to start things off. Um, your early surprises. It could be player, team. Who stands out to you right now that you're, you've been surprised about? Uh, I think we already mentioned the red or the Reds and the Angels, and yep. I, I know we're going to talk a little more about them. I think that they're both off, obviously they're both off to good starts, but what particularly stands out to me, especially with Cincinnati, 69 runs scored, leading the na- leading not just nationally but the majors in general, plus 23 uh, run differential, which is the best in tied for the do- tied with the Dodgers for the best in baseball. That's certainly not what I expected coming out of the Cincinnati Reds. Well, we both Reds. had Castellanos uh, just really becoming an MVP. Yeah, and that, the that's the year. thing. Like There are guys on that team where it's like, it doesn't surprise me to see Nick Castellanos and Mike Moustakas and, and Eugenio Suarez hitting. I think what's going to be more interesting to see is, one, what are they going to do when they don't get to face the Pirates all the time? Uh, 25 of those 69 runs came in two games against Pittsburgh. <laughs> that Pittsburgh team is absolutely dreadful. So that's obviously going to be important. But on top of that, it's is there enough pitching to make this work right now? I think especially in the bullpen, it's it's looked a little shaky so far. You know, the the starting's been better. I mean, but that's also relying a lot on guys like Tyler Melee and Wade Miley to continue doing good stuff. But definitely Cincinnati's been a surprise for me so far. Uh, similarly, Philadelphia, I think, has been a little surprised. I didn't, I didn't, I know you and I kind of differed on this. I didn't really think the Phillies were going to be much of anything this season. Granted, they're they're only three runs above. You know, they've they're only they've only outscored them. They have th- only three more runs scored than allowed. So you know, they, they haven't exactly been a juggernaut, but they are six and three. They have. I think the biggest thing for them is that their bullpen looks a lot better, uh, even with some some a little bit of, of a few blowups, and even with Archie Bradley out right now. I think Jose Alvarado is a really big, important pickup for them, kind of give them another kind of top-tier arm. Uh, I saw a stat floating around that they have now thrown more pitches at, I believe, 
95 miles an hour or more this season than they did last season, Mm. which is really crazy. But it's also a sign that this pitching staff does seem to be both better and healthier, and in particular the bullpen. So I guess... All right, I guess I think that's a that's a very important thing and a, and a really important thing to keep an eye on too because that NL East race we already knew it was going to be uh, a crazy one and now we're just seeing especially like if if the Phillies can keep this up it's going to get even tighter. Otherwise, I mean, I don't know if it's a surprise because I've I've joked about this forever that I will always be on his side. But Byron Buxton looking mm. both healthy and awesome is just so wonderful to see, um, especially when you look at. Because Buxton's whole big thing always has been, well, number one, it's been staying healthy, and obviously we can't predict if that's going to continue, but hopefully it does. But number two, it's always been the plate discipline and the approach, a lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks. This year you're seeing so far, and so far he's cut his strikeout rate 10 points from last year, 26.7% down to just over 16. He has almost quintupled his walk rate, 1.5% to 6.5%. Still not a great walk rate, but it's obviously a much, much better rate than 1.5%. And for as much as this is still early season small sample, strikeout and walk rates, any kind of swing discipline rate is usually one of the first things to stabilize, which makes sense. If you look at a guy and he's just swinging and missing all the time, that's not really a good sign no matter how small a sample you're talking. So the fact that Buxton is doing that, the fact that he just looks, you know, he, he's just he's just showing better better discipline, better plate, a better approach to the plate, better selection, uh, swinging less, making more contact. I, I think that's a really, really important thing, and I really you know, I, I, that sounds silly, but you love to see it, and I've I've just been on the Byron Buxton train forever, so I'm very, very happy to see that. Um, those are kind of the ones I think that stood out to me, at least on the positive side of things. The interesting for me is like on the negative side of things, at least on a team perspective. I'm not really seeing any teams that are bad where I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's unexpected. You know, I, I think maybe you could say like, oh, I don't, I didn't think the A's were going to be this bad because they've been terrible so far. But that was a team I think we both thought was at real risk of taking a step backward because of their really bad offseason. And I think you're already seeing that so far. Uh, Alex Coffey over the Athletic wrote something that pretty much got to the right to the heart of it, which is this team very quickly had its depth exposed. And that depth was all old and cheap because A's ownership does not want to spend to ensure that they actually have the best quality players. So... I'm not surprised by that, but at the same time, it's a little sad to see just how bad the A's have been. I think another team that has real uh, train wreck potential is the Diamondbacks. I know they're getting Zach Gallen back today, but they have not looked particularly sharp. That offense is not particularly good. That rotation does not have a lot of depth. That bullpen is a total mess right now. And they're, I, I, I know no one pegged Arizona as a, as a playoff team. I don't think anyone really has them as a contender. But they could sink a lot further than I think even people are ready to think, and which which just raises the question to me too as to, you know, this is an Arizona team that looked a lot better than this, you know, two years ago, three years ago, that looked like it was on the right path, and now we're looking at a team that you know you you get the distinct vibe that enough injuries probably pushed this team to to more than ninety losses. I don't know how well, that the problem is. They're so in quick. the same division as the Rockies. Yeah, and that, that'll always keep them from being entirely in the basement because the Rockies yeah. are also just a very bad team. But the the Diamondbacks have actually been outscored 50-61, to 61, whereas the Rockies have only been outscored 48-50. to 50. Again, small shout sample. Shout out to Coors. Shout out to Coors. But, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, the Diamondbacks have given up the, most, the second most runs in baseball behind the Oakland A's. So, really, it's a pitching staff and, and also a defense that is just not working out right now. And I think that's, that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on because... If this is, you know, if this is the new normal for Arizona, then kind of how do they pivot out of this and what's next for them? Because this is not a team 
that can spend its way out of a hole. And they have a farm system that's not bad, but it's certainly not one that's you know brimming with blue chip prospects who are coming to save the day, aside from in the outfield where they have a, a, a few nice names. Yeah, I think it's going to get complicated and tough um, in Arizona. And I think it might be a little painful uh, for Dimex fans. Um, Jake Cronenworth, we got to mention him. We got to shout him out this week on the shout podcast. Shout out Jake Cronenworth. He's he's great. That should just that should just be this entire show. It's just we just we just named various guys we're gonna shout out. And we don't even talk about them. It's like shout out Jay Cronenworth. Uh shout out the Philadelphia Phillies. Mm-hmm. Shout yeah. out Byron Buxton. Yeah. Shout out so it's, to, just, it's an endless shout out track. Is well, I love you, Noah. Like I cannot say enough great things. Waskar, my, my boy. I just picked him up in both my fantasy leagues. I am all in on Waskar. That's well, slider. He's gonna be a fifth starter for a while. Um the ten Ks, like he's attacking hitters more this year. Like that dude is just uh he it, that's the whole thing it's just baseball is just fun like this where you're like everyone just focuses on kyle wright and bryce wilson and, all, and then you know it's just like i'm just gonna go be awesome quietly and just save our our rotation for a little bit um shout out to babip which sucks if we're doing the shout out thing because uh freddie freeman just an unreal unlucky streak like he has like one hit in 26 balls in play this year and it's like good for like 0.083 Jake, Jake Cronenworth's got a 375 BABIP, so he's got an actual shout-out to BABIP. Yeah, exactly. 438 on-base percentage. He's second in the NL with 15 hits. Like, that dude... I, I saw a little nugget in the San Diego Union Tribune um, about him where, like, I think he's only missed two pitches this year. On set. He's been thrown 77 pitches, and he's only uh, whiffed on two. That's some, that's some crazy David Fletcher lifestyle. <laughs> that is some... David Eckstein, maybe? Do we throw some? Yeah, well, I mean, same difference, really. Yeah. But I think, you know, you look at, you look at, um, excuse me, you look at Cronenworth's stats, and the big thing that jumps out to me is he is only struck out twice this year against five walks. Mm. His strikeout rate is 4%, and you look at his plate discipline stats, he's got a swinging strike rate of 0.5%, <laughs> and an outside contact rate of 95.2%, to go with the overall contact rate of 98.7%. You literally can't get a pitch by him. And as with everything in the first, in honestly, the entirety of April, that's not going to hold up all season. That guy's he is not going to put up a 98.7% overall contact rate or a 0.5% swing strike rate. That is completely impossible. But this is also a guy who last year had a swing strike rate of only 5.8%. This is a contact-oriented hitter who does not miss a lot. And so for as much as he's not going to do this for the entirety of the season... I think there's a very it's very reasonable to expect that this kind of output is something within the realm of possibility for him just because he is one of those contact oriented doesn't swing and miss guys and when that is how you are I mean that's not a fluke that is that is an, a that is a disciplined particular specific approach so I'd be I'm gonna be it's, it's something to keep an eye on. I, I'm not gonna lie Jake Cronenworth is not a guy I'd really been paying attention to throughout the first part of the season. Mostly because, I mean, when you talk about the Padres, it's been Musgrove's no-hitter, it's been Tatis's injury, but definitely definitely something to keep an eye on because, man, those numbers are absolutely crazy, and it's interest, It's going to be interesting to see, like, especially how is it that he, he's going to keep this up. Yeah. Speaking of keeping things up, Kevin Gaussman, who I don't, none of us can just quit. Like, this dude's just going to be a swing guy for a contender in, like, six months, but, like... He is, uh, he's back to being Kevin Gassman in San Francisco early on this season, John. Yeah, and I, I'd actually be curious to see what the plan is for him because you're right that he definitely looks like a guy who, if the Giants are not in the race, and I don't really see any reason to think that they're, I mean, they're 6-4 they're and four right now. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they've outscored, they're 
scored more runs than they've allowed, albeit just by two. But you know, we've like we've talked about the NL West is just brutal, and the NL wild card race is going to be just as tough because you're going to get a bunch of the NL East teams, I think. Plus, whoever manages to not win the NL Central is going to be involved in that. So I could definitely see him being a guy who is at least mentioned in trade rumors before the or before the all or before not before the all star break before the trade deadline. But I guess the thing is, if you're San Francisco and you act and you have an idea of like, okay, we're building this core, we are we're trying to kind of, we're trying to rebuild things going forward. Is this a guy you want to build around? Is this a guy you want to try to keep in some capacity? I know he's only signed through 2021. He's a free agent again next year. But is this someone where if he puts together another good season, you kind of roll the dice and say, hey, look, we're, we don't really have a whole lot of kind of in-house pitching options right now. You know, Johnny Cueto is old and I also and I believe also on the last year of his contract or getting close to it. Uh, Logan Webb has not really looked all that great so far. Aaron Sanchez, I think, is still kind of a project in the making, even though he's looked he's looked all right so far. Uh, a similar deal, I think, with Anthony DiSclafani. It's you know, a lot of those guys, I think, are in that Kevin Gaussman program of let's see if we can build something up here. So once you have built something up, is that something you want to keep going forward? Because of the fact that as the as a you know as the Giants, they're not going to be spending a lot of money in free agency. And that really any other pitcher you get your hands on through free agency is also going to be in that same realm of above 30 and kind of a long-term risk regardless. So why not take the long-term risk with the guy you already know and already like and who seems to have built something sustainable? Because you look at what Gaussman's done, it doesn't feel like a fluke. Yeah. And, you know, especially because you don't have He's that much 30. under contract. How is he only no, 30? I mean, the Orioles pitchers, man, they all came up with like 21, <laughs> got their brains beat in for four years, and then got to go and do nice things elsewhere. But... The, the other thing is the Giants have so little money committed to next year. They have Evan Longoria for $20 million. They have a handful of guys who are going to be in arbitration. Or well, who they're going to pay Posey. They're going to pay Posey, although he's got a $22 million, team option, $22 million team option that's almost certainly going to be declined for a $5 million buyout. And I assume he's going to get a, a nice short one, year, one or two year deal to run it out. Or sorry, he has a $3, uh, a $3 million buyout. Cueto's, but Cueto's gone off the books. Brandon Crawford's going to be off the books. Brandon Belt is going to be off the books. Um, that's a lot of money that's going to free up. And given, like I said, this is the Giants are not a team that's going to jump feet first into the free agent market. There, I assume that they're not going to spend a lot. I assume that if they do, probably some of it's going to be targeted at a shortstop. Um, and especially because a lot of their best prospects coming up or coming forward right now are hitters, uh, led by Marco Luciano. You know, it, it's an open question as to, and I think, and if I, if it were me, I know which way I'd vote. I, I think if I'm the Giants, I'm thinking to myself. Okay, maybe we can get something for Brandon Belt at the deadline, or maybe we can get something for Johnny Cueto. You know, if there's someone who's willing to throw up anything, because we're not going to get anything for them when they leave. You know, but to build around this, especially like I said, hitter first core of Marco Luciano and Joey Bart and Helio Ramos. Do we want to keep a guy like Gaussman to be our number one right now, while we kind of, you know, keep building to that new young core? And I say yes. I I, I don't think there's a reason not to really, because well, he's playing really really well and or he's pitching really well it looks sustainable and what else like what else is really there that you're going to turn to that's going to be just as impactful you know i think the giants are probably still going to keep doing their let's find some guys like aaron sanchez and anthony disclafani who are undervalued but have skill that they've shown in the past and see if we can't bring it out and i think that makes sense but once you've managed to unlock that with a guy why not hold on to it you know like you said galsman's only 30 he's probably not going to be that expensive next year at least in terms of what you would think especially because i mean a lot of it's going to depend on what the new CBA looks like, too. 
But I think if I'm the Giants, I'm probably hanging on to Gaussman unless I get an offer. I simply cannot refuse at the at the deadline. Yeah. We'll we'll see. Uh last thing as we wrap up here today, John. Um your early early concerns. Which uh what have you monitored? You're like, oh, this is something I did not see coming that's uh gonna that kind of troubles you right now. I think I, I already mentioned Oakland. I think their depth is a real problem. And for as much as, you know, obviously it's early. There's no, you know, no one is completely finished as of yet. But that was a team that really could not afford a slow start in the division they're in. Their playoff odds are all the way down to 15% right now because of the fact that they started at 0-6. Like, those games still count. Those games still matter. And the Angels and Astros getting off the strong starts makes that much, much worse for them. Uh, I think we mentioned the White Sox already, that there's some concerns there as to how these kind of these pieces all kind of fit together. I we think, can also not, not emphasize enough for good teams how much even games in April matter. Because I've seen that thrown around with these losses and the Braves loss and stuff like that, or the Mets winning a game because Conforto stuck his arm out. Like, those can be big things if your team is good. Like, if you are yes. in the thick of things, you can win a division. You can get in the playoff game by that one game. The idea that these games do not matter for good teams is silly. Yeah, like wins in April count as much as wins in September. We just right. don't think they do because it's April versus September. Mm-hmm. But no, these all these games matter, and any games, any any hole you're digging yourself into right now is one you still got to dig yourself out of. Yep. And I think you're seeing that with the A's. I wonder how much you're going to see that with the Nationals, another team that I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt somewhat because of that COVID outbreak. Is you know they clearly they had to play with a, a clearly limited roster for a little bit. Um, I think kind of similar to the Mets, you know, it's it's really hard to get a rhythm going when you just don't really get to play consistently or when you don't have your best players available because of, you know, things that are out of your control. But I just think that's that's mainly it for me is like you look at those teams that were supposed to be contenders or could have been at least in like with Washington, with Oakland, uh, less so with Chicago because they are, you know, that that AL Central is kind of a mess. But where there's some very clear issues there where you wonder, okay, you guys either need to figure some stuff out in terms of kind of who sticks and who goes, or you need to add some help because right now this roster is not, you just look at it and go, no, you, you don't have enough right now. Or there's a, excuse me, there's a very clear problem spot that you need to address one way or the other, either through some somehow internally, somehow maybe through trade at some point. Because again, yeah, it's early. You don't want to overreact to things that are happening in the first two weeks of the season, but all these games count. And the holes that are open, the holes that are visible they're not necessarily just going to go away when the calendar flips to May if you don't do anything about it. All right, John, we will leave it there. Anything you would like to plug or anything like that before we get out of here today? Um, Just go go on over to Fangraphs. We're still doing our April membership drive. Uh, sign up for a membership if you haven't already. You get access to all our great stuff. Plus, uh, if you sign up for our highest tier membership option, you get to browse a website ad-free, which really, really speeds up the experience. Uh, if you already have a membership, also you can gift a membership to someone. You can buy a membership and send it on to a friend, a family member, a fellow nerd. Uh, that counts toward our membership drive as well. You know, all your support helps keep FanGraphs going. So head on over there if you've if you've never been or if you've been a million times. You know, give us give us your support and help keep FanGraphs uh, help keep FanGraphs alive. All right. Well, go do that. It's a great website. I check it every day. So go do it. Um, John, thank you as always for my friend that. I love that uh, we got the we got the good voice. We got uh, the official yeah, we got, I, John Taylor microphone. I, I'm so excited. I got to do I got to do podcast voice, and at some point I'm gonna have to do radio voice, where I just kind of deepen it and just sound like load it up with gravitas. Yeah, like get less, really mad less, at less just more fans more measured and slow, just to very much like 
going forward, and we can see in these particular <laughs> forecasters. I'm just going to turn this into ASMR and just have some fun with it. There you go. Uh, John, thank you as always, my friend. Uh, we will talk next week. All right, later, dude. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I'm now joined by the Athletics. Very great. Dallas Cowboys writer. It's John Machado. Machado, I did it anyway, even though I just asked before we got started. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, man. Um, so can Cowboys fans. I'm curious, because the Cowboys are going to have kind of a normal offseason now that Dak's paid. Um, that was just something that was looming over this franchise for years and looming over the fan base for years. That's over. Can Cowboys fans now just settle in with Dak Prescott leading them for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, that was the biggest piece that needed to fall into place. I mean, you're you're not going to go very far in this league if you don't have a starting quarterback. And, uh, you know, there's several good teams around the league that seem to have all the other pieces except for that, and they just can't get it done. And so if the Cowboys had let this thing play out long enough, then you get Dak going to the free agent market next year, and there would have been a lot of teams bidding for his services just because even if you're the harshest of Dak Prescott critics, you still know that he's a, he's a solid starter at the very least in the NFL. And as long as you're that, you're going to get paid in this league. And so, yeah, that was the biggest piece. Now that that's in place, uh, you know, the Cowboys can especially go into this draft not even having to worry about that position because, see, if you don't sign Dak and you have him under another franchise tag this year, you have to seriously consider – looking at a quarterback in this draft because you don't know if you're going to have Dak back a year from now. Now they can go into this draft and really focus in on the defense. And the way things look right now, it looks like they have a decent chance at, at pick 10 of getting, you know, the best defensive player in this draft. So yeah, the, getting the Dak thing out of the way, uh, that's a, that's a huge uh, sigh of relief for the organization, even though it is costing them quite a bit of money. What do you, what do you think their plan is? Do you think it's going to be defense heavy? Do you think Dan Quinn will have a, his he wants to go defensive line, pass rush. Do you think they're going to go certain if he's there? Like, what do you what do you make of what they'll do at pick number ten? I think it will be extremely defensive heavy. Now, I that was the that should have been the goal last year too. And they go on the board at seventeen, and Caleb on Chason's there, and so is Ceedee Lamb. And Ceedee Lamb is the guy that they had, I think, five or six on their draft board. So. They went and took him as opposed to helping the defense. And if you look at the rookie years that each of those two players had, obviously CeeDee Lamb was more productive. So with the Cowboys, you can never completely rule out them taking a top offensive player if that player is there on the board and it's much higher than they thought. You know, they thought the player would be long gone. You can never rule it out. It's just that's how the Cowboys have been really going back to since Jerry Jones bought the franchise in 1989. I mean, that's just how they've definitely leaned offense in, in drafts. But this one, I mean, it – if there's ever going to be one that's defensive heavy, it has to be this one. They have 10 picks in this draft. I don't think they'll make 10. I think they'll use a couple of those picks to package together and move up to get some other players. But having 10 picks helps. They had uh, four in the, in the top 99. So I would, I would imagine that at least three of those four will be defense. And right now, if Patrick Sertan's there at number 10, he certainly makes a ton of sense. I mean, corner's a major need for them. And if you were able to get Patrick Sertan and pair him with Trayvon Diggs, you know, former Alabama teammates, you got pretty good corner situation going for the next five to 10 years. So that's where I would be aiming if I was trying to project where the Cowboys are going to go as of today. Do you think they have real interest in Kyle Pitts and trading up for him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm sure there's some there's some interest in him just because he is such a unique talent and mm-hmm. and at the tight end position on top of that. But I, I I find it hard to believe that they'd be willing to trade up. I I, I, I can play ball if you said that they're interested if he was there at ten. He's just, I just not find be it hard to believe. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think he will be. But th- but I'm just saying that because there's a lot of Cowboys fans that don't even want them taking him if he's there at ten. And so interesting. Uh, I do think. Yeah, I do think that they would consider him at 10. Yeah, there's a lot of Cowboys fans want them to fix his defense and have wanted them to fix his defense for the better part of the last decade. Mm-hmm. So, but no, uh, um, but I don't think that they would trade up because really, to be honest with you, to get Kyle Pitts, I think you got to get in the top five or six. And to go from 10 to five or six, it's still, it's going to cost you a ton. And mm-hmm. I don't think, me personally, I don't think you pay that unless you're trying to go up there to get a quarterback. I, I just don't think you do that, even for a tight end, even if it, it even if he's a once-in-10-year prospect at tight end. I don't think you give up what it's going to take to get from 10 to 5 or 6. So uh, I, I think the, I think if they don't go defense at 10, and, and, and I agree with you, I don't think Kyle Pitts will be there, don't rule out if a, a, a Penny Sewell That's or That's what I was Rashawn just about Slate, to ask. Of, yeah. Yeah, if one of them fell there, I mean, the Cowboys have – and, and, and I like to judge them on recent draft history because Will McClay has been running their draft since 2014, and they certainly have, you know, they've, had a, they've, they've been one of the better teams at drafting since he's taken over, and, and he certainly has put a premium on the offensive line, and, and they have spent several first-round picks on offensive linemen, and so you just spend all this money on Dak Prescott. You, you had Lyle Collins out all of last season. Tyron Smith missed all but 14 games he missed last year. Uh, so offensive tackle is an issue. Uh, in terms of health. And so if one of them were to be there, that could make stuff interesting too. Interesting. Yeah. I just, I kind of wonder when Cowboys fans gloss over the offensive line. Cause like, that's my biggest thing for them is like, if they have the number one and number two offensive linemen on their board sitting there at number 10, I just over corner, there's a lot of talent there and you can find those guys and there's the pass rush. Like it's just, it seems like kind of a weak pass rush draft. Um, and I would be hesitant to reach on that. And also just, the history of Cowboys, uh, you know, they've done really well drafting offensive linemen. Maybe not the best at drafting defensive linemen. Maybe not the best at drafting corners. And also, I'm not sure if I'm betting on Dan Quinn developing all these guys. Like, as a Falcons fan, as someone who watched Dan Quinn for, for <laughs> several, several years coach up this defense, I'd be concerned anyway if I'm a Cowboys fan where I'm like, you know what I know for sure? Our offense is going to be awesome. Like, that was the idea with CeeDee Lamb. We're already awesome. Let's just add him into the mix and make it even more difficult for teams to kill us with uh, 11 personnel. So I don't know. I think that's interesting. Like, let's say in this scenario, John, that Panay Sewell, Micah Parsons, and Patrick Sertan are there at number 10. Where do you think they go? I think they would take Sewell. I just, interesting. He's just too good of a prospect. Um, I just, I, I mean, you'd be getting probably the best offensive tackle in this class, and you know, that offensive tackle is a position. I I was doing some research for one of our, our podcasts at The Athletic, and, I mean, you really – it's hard to find diamonds in the rough at, at starting offensive tackles outside that first round. There's a few that are in the second, and then there's the complete outlier with, like, David Bakhtiari from Green Bay, who was, like, a fourth-round pick. But for the most part, if you want to get starting quality offensive tackles that, you know, that's a position you can be the starter for a decade. If you want to get a guy like that, you probably have to do it in the first round and probably pretty high in the first round. So if they have serious concern about Tyron Smith or Lyle Collins' future, uh, that would certainly be an answer to it real quick because you would have a guy that could step in immediately or could possibly, you know, sit back and, here's the thing, like, I don't think anybody, even if Lyle Collins and Tyron Smith are healthy this year, 
expect them to play every single game. It just it hasn't happened over the last five years. So just flush with how much they use the swing tackle, things like that. Like they would find a way to get Penny Sewell out there and they would put Dak Prescott in a great position for a long time, uh, you know, with, with the protection in front of him. And also I think it would help uh, the running game too. It, I mean, that's clearly been a problem in Dallas the last couple of years after they spent, you know, a top five pick on Ezekiel Elliott. It just hasn't been the same last couple of years. And, you know, so, while well, some of that's on Zeke, some of that's on the offensive line too. So it is interesting that you mentioned the Dan Quinn thing, because that was our thing looking back on some of his history drafting with the Falcons. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously like a guy like Tack McKinley, he, he took him in the first round and, 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 you know, Vic Beasley, like those are some of the first round picks he took when he immediately took over the organization. So it makes me think, what if Patrick Sertan maybe isn't there at 10, would they be would they be willing to reach? Would they be trying to get like a Quiddy Pay or one of these other edge rushers, um, Ojolari from from Georgia? Uh, because I, in the past, the Cowboys have given their coaches a lot of say in the draft room. If they mm-hmm. really like a player and it needs to fill a need, where they could certainly use another edge rusher. I, I'm interested to see if what would happen if 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 that was the case. If if Dan Quinn is just in love with one of these edge rushers, even though. 10 seems a little high. Would they take a guy there? I don't think you can completely rule that out. Was Kellen Moore interested in the Boise job? Yeah, for sure. Um, But I just, I, I, you know, I've heard, I've heard mixed stories on why that, that, that fell apart. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard stuff about, you know, uh, the commitment to to the football program and things like that might've been an issue. Uh, you know, contract stuff, things like that. But no, there, there certainly was interest. I mean, he interviewed for the job and, 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 and I'll say this. I, I do think that I do think he's going to be a very good offensive coordinator. He's going to be a good offensive coach and, and, and possibly even a, a good head coach down the line in the NFL, but I would never rule him out going back to Boise state. I mean, he absolutely loves, you know, he loves his time there and obviously he's beloved there for what he's done. But um, I just, I don't know. I think it would be tough to, I know that maybe that job doesn't come open again for a long time, but the weapons that he has in this offense and how much Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones like him and want him around, uh, I just think it would be tough to turn down the job he's got right now, especially with Dak and the relationship they have. Like, it just There's a lot of pieces that are in place right now for him to have success. And, and, and to me, the biggest one is just look across the league at how fast these young offensive minds have gone from having, you know, a good, a, a one good season, and then boom, they're out, they're automatically at the top of like the next head coaching list the following year. And I believe the same thing will happen with Kellen Moore. If this, if the Cowboys have a bounce back season like they like they should, uh, if they're underachieving last year and obviously a lot of injuries and things like that, but if they bounce back and they have a big season, particularly on offense, Kellen Moore is going to be in the mix to be interviewed for head coaching jobs in the NFL. Yeah. Um. Yes or no? This time next year, it is April. 13th Ezekiel Elliott is still a member of the Dallas Cowboys true or false yeah he will be they they uh they picked up or well they didn't they couldn't they had an out in his contract uh about a month ago for him and Jalen Smith where they technically could have got out of those contracts now they would have had to eat a bunch of money but by not getting out of them they basically guaranteed Ezekiel Elliott's going to be here through 2022 so yeah he'll uh, he'll still be around uh barring any type of a you know significant injury or something like that uh the one thing to keep an eye on though would be as if there is a lack of effectiveness let's say from him then i think what you'd see is more touches more carries more use of tony pollard and they really like tony pollard a lot but 
up until this point over these last two years since Pollard's been with the team, he's been the clear number two. But if it was if, if Zeke was to come in this season and and, and looks like slow or, or just look not, not look like himself and 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 the yard, I mean just the the average per carry went down. I mean he had one of his I mean he had the worst season of his career last year. And if, if those numbers stay the same and the offensive line's relatively healthy, which I find it hard to believe that they would be healthy and his numbers wouldn't improve. But if they were somehow, I think you'd see Tony Pollard get get a bigger bulk of the carries. Interesting. So is there any other pre draft storyline that you're monitoring right now um that uh something that has fascinated you leading up to the draft and just with free agency and the way this this roster is shaping up my big thing is is going to be it's really on the defense and and the type of players they target at linebacker and, and along the defensive line because the entire time rod marinelli was the defensive coordinator and even when he, this first year in 2013 when he was the defensive line coach it was uh you know, there's a very specific type of player, the edge rusher that they were looking for, you know, guys that fit the mold of like a Demarcus Lawrence, like they have right now. And this past year under Mike Nolan and his one year as defensive coordinator, they seem to be looking for whatever, whoever they thought were the best players available. So that could have been guys that are were maybe a better fit as a three, four outside linebacker top type of rush guy, like a Caleb on chase on from LSU. And now under Dan Quinn, it certainly seems like they're going to go back to what they were doing under Rod Marinelli. And so um, it, if that's the case, then you're going to go back to most of – if they're going to use a high pick on a defensive back, it's probably going to be a, a guy, a, a taller guy, a longer guy. That's where Patrick Sertan fits in perfectly, as opposed to if you don't grab a, a corner in the first round and the second round, a lot of those guys that are there like Elijah Molden and Asante Samuel Jr., they're, just, they're not the taller type corners that like a Dan Quinn – Seattle style defense, Rod Marinelli with the Tampa two. That's not that's not really what they like. And so I'm interested to see through this draft how they attack those positions because they have to be addressed. And it'll tell you a lot more about the direction of this defense because, I mean, just last year was just a disaster. It was like I didn't even I didn't even know what I was watching out there. The, the Cowboys defense has never been anything special over the last decade. Don't get me wrong, but but last year was just it was inexcusable how bad they were, particularly against the run. So. How they address this defense, particularly in the front seven, that's that's going to be the thing I'm most interested in because one other piece in that, what you mentioned in being a Falcons fan, is that I was kind of I was kind of surprised that if they signed Ken O'Neill, and I know it's only a one year deal, but that that Mike McCarthy said that he's going to start out working with the linebackers, and I thought yeah. that he would be a good fit at safety because I mean the Cowboys have put the least amount of investment in the safety position over the last decade in the entire NFL. It's not even close. And so now they're saying that he's going to work at some weak side linebacker. That's where he's going to start out at. So, you know, safety's still a big need, too. So Well, you have Casey, really anything who is actually really great. Me. I'm bigger on Casey than I am on uh, Neil, I will say. But okay. it, he's coming yeah, off a torn I, Achilles. So that's a problem. Yeah. Like, the the, sure. the injury stuff with him. Keanu finally had a full season. Um, he was solid for the Falcons last year. But he's just built like a linebacker with a, a modern linebacker, we should say. Just with the speed it requires to be a modern linebacker. And... I don't know. I, I I would just say that Casey might surprise you, John. Well, anything positive from the safety position will be overblown in Dallas because there just hasn't been a lot of production from safety, like I said, for like, mm-hmm. I mean, we're going on a decade. I mean, they just haven't spent on the position in free agency or in the draft. There just hasn't been a high draft. I mean, they drafted Byron Jones in, in the first round in 2015 but it was like you knew he was going to be eventually they're going to move him to corner because that was just the position he fit best in and so they just really haven't put any investment in there and even with 
KZ and, and Neil and, and uh, some of the investments that they've made up to this point, like they're one-year deals. They're like not like a ha-ha Clinton Dix they signed last year. It was like a one-year deal. Like George Ioka the year before that, it's a one-year deal. Those guys didn't even make it to week one but before they were already cut. So they're not putting in significant investments at all. So it makes me wonder, will they do that in this draft? I mean, there's certainly going to be opportunities in the second and third round to draft a safety, uh, particularly free safety is what they really need. So, you know, anything really, to answer your question, anything on the defense intrigues me because it was just so bad last year and it looked nothing like it had been in previous years. Awesome. Well, what can we check out from you this week at theathletic.com? We are hitting the draft harder than we have in, in previous years. This is my, I'm on my, this is my second, a little over second year with the athletic. I used to work at the Dallas Morning News covering the Cowboys. And, you know, every year I feel like, whether I was working the morning news or now at the athletic, like the draft just keeps taking on and like a bigger and bigger piece. Like to almost where like, like there's more hype about the draft. I feel like than there is even for a lot of games during the season. I, I just, it, and it builds like you start doing mock drafts, like two, I don't know, almost two months ago. I think I did my first one, you know, just putting out things like, especially with the Cowboys because they don't spend much in free agency. So it's all about the draft. So yeah, pretty much, three, four days a week for the next, you know, couple of weeks, it's going to be just draft stuff all day long. So whether it's projecting things that could potentially happen or uh, just kind of giving our takes on players and stuff like that, there, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming uh, all draft related uh, now. And then probably even through the draft going into May. All right. Well, go keep up the great work, my friend. And thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Um- All right, we're back on the Chase Noss Podcast, and I'm now joined by Evan Joyce of the Winston-Salem Journal to talk Appalachian State, a very good football program in Boone, North Carolina that I am very fascinated about heading into 2021 and also what happened in 2020. Um, how is it going, Ethan? It's, it's going pretty good, man. Um, you know, things are, things are kind of picking up and maybe – you dare I say, getting a little more normal as far as the 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 structure of the year goes. Aft's kind of in the middle of their their spring practices right now. I think Monday would have been either practice eight or nine. Um, so you know they're in the thick of it, and you know kind of getting a vibe for what this football team looks like this year. How many years will Zach Thomas be a Mountaineer, Ethan? <laughs> Man, he lingered around for a long time. You know, he um, he just went through his pro day finally. Um, Are we sure you know, he's and, leaving? And What's yeah. his lease situation in Boone? <laughs> yeah, you know, he's um, he's 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 been a fun guy to watch develop. Um, you know, he took over for a guy in Taylor Lamb, who I covered his senior year in 2017, and Zach was that combination of um, sheer just 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 quality of football player but the sheer athleticism that made the app state offense a lot more lethal um you know so this year they're working with chase bryce who you might know from his duke clemson legend, days and from his duke yeah, and it's from his duke days more notably his clemson days i think but um but yeah you know he's he's had he's had some really good reviews early early on and they seem to like his fit in this offense compared to maybe the Duke offense fit last year when he's trying to transition in a year where COVID-19 obviously rattled everything and 
I'm sure that kind of hurts a quarterback's ability to adjust to a team that he's trying to learn and an offense that he's trying to learn. So he's got in there with those guys this year, and all reviews look pretty good so far. Speaking of reviews, what are the reviews for you, for Sean Clark, to this point in his coaching tenure at App State? I think considering last year was his first year as a head coach, and he got hit with the most, um, you know, the most rattling year just in general, but definitely the most rattling situation that you could run into as a head coach. I think you did very well. Um, yeah, I'm interested to really see what kind of changes this year. I think, I think last season you saw a team that didn't necessarily click as well on offense as, as it was accustomed to. And part of that was some injuries. You know, there was, there was a, the opt out of Corey Sutton who was still trying to recover from an ACL or a knee, a knee injury at, at the end of 2019. Um, and he wasn't going to be healthy at the beginning of the year last year anyway. So he ended up opting out to come back this year. So you're missing a really big producer there. You had a lot of injuries that popped up on the offensive side and you had a first year coordinator in Tony Peterson. Um, and, and app really wanted to establish the run game. That's, that's kind of been what they've, they've always done. And no matter the coordinator, they found a way to do it. And unfortunately they just didn't have the health or the weapons that could consistently spread that field out to make those running lanes a little bigger. Um, and so that's, that's what's going to be interesting is, you know, how healthy can this team stay at the beginning of the season? But also, what does that mean for Sean Clark as a head coach and, and you know, the offense that's going to be under him? Um, you know, what's it, what's it mean? Like, do we, do we finally get to see maybe what, what is more normal of, of an offensive look for him? And I think you will. They're too talented in this conference to, to not put on a good show game in and game out. It's just about really staying healthy and, and Chase Bryce adjusting as quickly as he can. I would I would hold my breath in the Chase Bryce aspect of, of this. Um, I, I might do that. Um, what have been the biggest differences you've noticed from the way Clark is ru- is just running things versus Eli and Satterfield? Um, I Clark is definitely more sat than he is Eli, mm. um, and I I say that in the sense of. Um, you know, I think like Eli was a very Eli's Eli's a very smart guy. He's he's um, he's very protective and he's very guarded. Um, you know, and so I think he was he would he would play a lot. You know, it was all I always kind of enjoyed our back and forths because he really made me work for things sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I and and he was very much a guy who had his hands in everything. And, you know, Sean and Satterfield, similarly, um, just a little more laid back. You know, they're guys that came out of the the App State program as players, um, guys that, you know, Sat was a longtime assistant before he finally became head coach, and Sean ended up coming to work for Sat um, just before I would have gotten on the beat. But, um, you know, those guys are just kind of, Guys that really take a lot of pride in the program, that's not to say Eli didn't, but 
I think they're just a little more laid back, whereas Eli came into a scenario where um, he was inheriting a really good program. And there's a lot more pressure on the job that he got compared to maybe, let's say, a, a South Alabama that wasn't doing well before they made their coaching change. You know, there's there's way more pressure to be the guy coming in for a Scott Satterfield who took this program to some pretty amazing heights, and Eli was able to match it in his one year. Um, you know, Sean is a is a stable hand. I think he's going to be here for for a long time. I think he's going to have a successful program because, in part, the guts of this program are too good. Um, you know, but what is what does it look like? long term for for sean clark i'm really interested to see it i I really am interesting um what was the most important win for sean clark last year in year one georgia southern okay um just just because app had lost to georgia southern the last two years and not only had lost but had lost his ranked teams um you know they they get ranked uh, they get ranked in the end of I gotta I gotta think about my years now. They get ranked in 2018, first time the school's ever been ranked in the AP Top 25 poll. A huge moment for the program, right? Because it's still such a fresh FBS program when you consider the history of this program. Um, and then they went to Georgia Southern and just had this combination of just unfortunate. Injury to Zach Thomas in the beginning, uh, a targeting call to inside linebacker Jordan Fair that just like really muddied up the start of that game, and it just got out of their control. And then in nineteen, Eli loses to Eli loses to Georgia Southern. It's the the only loss of that season. But you're talking about a team that was probably the favorite for the New Year Six Bowl. It definitely should have been more in that conversation. And, and, you know, just had a really off night and a cold and, and snowy game in Boone where Georgia Southern came to Boone and won. So beating Georgia Southern and not letting that go to three years in a row is a big deal. Um, and so it, it, it gives a lot to build on. Now, the only issue is that they played three teams that were in the top 25, and they lost to all three of them. Um, you know, you, you lose to, I'm trying, I'm blanking right now. You lose to Marshall, you lose to Coastal and you lose to Louisiana. Yep. Um, and in, in those last two games, App was right there. Yeah. Just, just wasn't able to get it, get it together. Now the Marshall game, they were there. kind of had a pretty good, yeah, yeah. You know, like it was, it was low scoring, but that deficit seems so much bigger in that game Hmm. than say the, the Coastal and the, and the Louisiana game. Cause you could. You know, there were moments where you could see uh, maybe the tide turns in, in the Coastal and the Louisiana game against Marshall. That was just one of those games where it seemed like it was kind of it, – it, once that 10-point lead got established and it was like this feels like a lot bigger than this because App was just clawing as hard as they could and couldn't get through it. So they were a good team last year. wasn't always pretty, but, you know, little things are what decides games like that. And it just so happens that – they lose. They lose those three games to to teams that they they maybe could have beaten if if they play a little bit better that day. What are the spring storylines that uh, you're monitoring right now? Um, de- I mean, definitely Chase Bryce. Um, you know, he's 
his his adjustment's really important. Um, you know, that's that's probably like an easy thing to say about a quarterback, but it's just the truth. You know, you go as far as your quarterback can go. Um, offensive line's a big one just because they're losing. I'm thinking they lost three of their five starters. Um, uh, you know, essentially your, your left tackle, your left guard, and your center. Um, the guy who played right guard last year is a guy named Bear Hunter, and he's switching from right guard to center. Um, that's probably one of the best names in college football, might I add. Uh, but, you know, his, his adjustment from guard to center really kind of establishes probably the rest of, of, of how that O-line takes shape. Um, and, you know, they've, they're really lucky this year in the sense that that extra eligibility came because 2021 was really setting up to be a year of not going to say rebuilding, but it was going to be a year where you probably say, okay, you're going to you're going to go to a bowl game more than likely but this is going to be a game a, a season where a lot of development's going to have to happen for the future um just because they've had so many guys particularly on the offensive side of the ball that just played so much football um you know you had guys you could depend on and there weren't maybe those 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 opportunities to build as much depth as you would like to have ready for that for that step forward in 2021 and now you're returning a team with a lot of super seniors that have really helped fill some of those holes. Um, and it sets them up really nicely. Like the, it's a, it's a pretty good schedule. You could really have some pretty, um, some pretty big moments in the start of this season with, with the, the games that they're playing in. So it's, it set them up really well when this extra eligibility came because it meant some guys that have been playing football and maybe have even been starting for four years get to come back for one more year and help smooth over what would have been maybe a harder year without that extra eligibility. Interesting. All right. Well, what can we check out from you this week at uh, the Winston-Salem Journal even? Well, I'm actually doing some longer range things. Um, So, you know, TBD, but they are in the middle of spring practice and I'll be up there on Wednesday and on Saturday, probably just trying to hopefully give in a little more insight on the mind of, of Chase Bryce, because I think he's like a really, I think, I think his approach is really interesting. And he's, he's from what I've heard from teammates and coaches, he's hyper analytical and I'm really, I'm really wanting to, you know, pick into his brain a little bit and see what it's like. Um, so hopefully that'll be coming soon, but you guys can follow me on Twitter at, Ethan Joyce, WSJ. All right. Well, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for making the time today, Ethan. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to circle back when Chase Bryce is just, uh, you know, the next 18-year quarterback at App State somehow <laughs> in skirting eligibility requirements. It's, it's going to be great. Who, yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, Ethan, thank you so much, and uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. Appreciate it. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.